Good morning. Happy Easter. My name is Shannon. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of a sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for giving us your son Jesus to die on the cross. We thank you not only for his death, but for his resurrection. Please help us feel the weight and blessing of that this morning. God, thank you for your written word and the preached word that we're going to receive today. Please continue to sanctify us and open our ears and hearts to your word this morning. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Helps me preach when the most beautiful woman in the world just reads the scripture. It's my wife, by the way, just if you didn't know. My wife, Shannon. All right, time for me to shout. This is the most important day in all of human history, yes? Most important day in all of human history. I want you to consider all of the days of human history, the highs and the lows, and this is the most important day in all of human history. And today is all about the most important person in all of human history, yes? Yes, think of all the important men and women, the warlords, the criminals, the presidents, the emperors, the ministers, the sweet people, the nice people, the notorious people. This day is about the most important person in all of human history. And we celebrate today the most important thing that's ever been done, and it was done by the most important person in history on the most important day in history. Yes? Very good. Today, you've got to answer the most important question you're ever going to answer in your whole life. The most important question you will ever answer in your whole life. And that question is, who do you say Jesus is? That's the most important question. Who do you say Jesus is? Let me tell you a little bit about him. More books have been written about him than anyone else. More songs have been sung about him and to him than anyone else. He's the most controversial and most debated person of all time. His book, the Bible, has sold more copies than any other book in the entire history of mankind, and it's also been stolen more than most books, right? Celebrities and superstars, they make 
commentaries and their works and their songs, their movies and in the media, everyone's got an opinion on this man, Jesus Christ. His name and example have been the fuel for the greatest and most heroic and sacrificial human activities the world has ever seen. And sadly, his name has also been fuel for some of the most grievous sins that human beings have ever committed. Let us not forget that as his people. The calendar of the human race is split in two, is split right in half based on his life, his birth, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. His followers number in the billions. His followers number in the billions. And this morning, those billions join with you here today at Restoration City Church. All across the planet, billions in their Nations, their cities, their towns and villages, in the cathedrals of Europe, in the megachurches of America, in the little white-painted buildings with steeples that dot the American countryside, in cinder block hovels hidden in the deep mountainous jungles of South America, in open-air auditoriums of the sub-Saharan Africa, in thatch-roofed huts along the rivers of Southeast Asia and in hidden secret places underground throughout the Middle East, China, and North Korea. All morning long while you were sleeping, and all, afternoon, all, all morning long while we are here, and into the afternoon and early evening once you are eating your honey-baked hams and doing Easter egg hunts, I want you to know that billions of people across this planet are commemorating, celebrating, pondering, and trusting in the gospel truth of the Easter of Jesus Christ. Don't let this morning go by. Don't let it go by with simple festivities, bunnies, eggs, flowery dresses, pastel outfits, family time. Don't be satisfied with honey ham lunch and sweet tea. Don't be satisfied with that. Don't be distracted by the family time and the egg hunts and the jelly beans. Today is the greatest, most important, pivotal day in all of human history. Today is the day that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose from the dead. What did you say? Amen. He is alive. He rose from the dead. Jesus, the Son of God, murdered wrongly and for the sins of men. Jesus, who laid down his life under his own power and by his own power picked it back up again. This Jesus, this is his day. Today is not just a fun day. It's not simply a pretty day. Today is not just a spring day. It's not just a religious day. Today is a happy day, a hopeful day, an exciting day, a renewing day. And for someone out there, my prayer for weeks has been that today would be your first day of a new life because of what is preached to you today. That is my prayer. Because on this day, starting 2,000 years ago, Two women went running back to their friends with unbelievable news, the best news. Jesus is alive. Amen. Jesus is alive. Amen. Jesus is alive. Tell the children, tell your friends, tell your neighbor, tell your boss. Go tell the kings and the thrones and the rulers and authorities, high and low. And when he, when he comes to attack, you tell Satan. You tell your great enemy. You tell yourself, friends, that Jesus is alive. He is risen. 
And that's the most important thing to know about the most important person that ever lived or ever will live. And this is the most important question you will ever answer for yourself in your whole life. If you are old enough to be my father or grandfather, if you are young enough to be my child, I guarantee you and I tell you the truth, that is my service to you. As an elder, as a pastor, as a shepherd, I promise to you, I guarantee to you that I will not lie to you about the person and work of the man of this book, Jesus. This is the most important question you will ever answer. It's not who will you marry. It's not what will you do for your living and life. It's not where will you live. It's not how will you spend or save. It's not whether you're going to raise your children this way or that way. It is who do I say Jesus is? Because that question, friends, determines the course of your life here and the course of your life for the eternal one that comes next. Your theology determines your biography. It counts for everything. And so I'm here to help. I submit to you eight things today that you need to know about Jesus. Eight things that you need to know about this man, Jesus. I'm going to tell them to you from a book that God wrote and which Jesus quoted from, he preached from, and taught from, and he lived by himself. So it's good enough for him, now it's going to be good enough for us. That's my service to you. I am a preacher of the Bible. If someone ever opens this book, if you're not a member of this church, and you have your own church, or you're looking for another church, when you go to a church, if anyone ever opens this Bible, and they preach to you, but they don't get to the person, the work, the salvation gospel of the man who is God, Jesus Christ, and they did not preach this book to you. They didn't preach this book. And if anyone ever tries to preach to you, teach to you, evangelize to you, tell you about Jesus, and they don't get it from the book that's all about Jesus, for Jesus, and from Jesus, then they are not preaching this book, nor are they preaching Jesus to you. And that's what I'm here for today, because I love you. And I'm yelling because I love you. And I'm yelling because I love Jesus. And I'm yelling because I'm excited. And I have Adderall in my system. Eight things to know. Eight things you need to know about the most important person ever, Jesus. Number one, Jesus really did say that he is God. Jesus really did say this. Do not believe what your idiot pothead friends in high school and college told you. Don't believe what the people of the internet say on Reddit and on Facebook and on the Twitter and on the Instagrams. Don't believe what they ignorantly tell you, that they say Jesus never said he was God. This is a lie. Many tell it ignorantly, and some tell it willfully and knowingly and wickedly and detestably. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus himself, he says, I in the Father, in heaven, God, we are one. Not simply unified, not simply tight. We are one in the same. In the next two verses, Jesus tells his listeners all of these things and what he means. And in those two verses, his listeners, they'll gather stones, picking them up, seeking to kill him. And his question to his potential murderers is, why do you want to kill me? This is in John chapter 10. Why do you want to kill me? And they answered, because you blasphemy. You are a man claiming to be God. His Hebrew listeners, his Jewish listeners, knew exactly what he was claiming. They understood exactly what he meant, and they wanted to kill him for claiming that he, a man, was God. John chapter 8, verse 48, and multiple other times, Jesus claims for himself the title, I am. 
This is the name that the Hebrews had known since the time of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. This is God's eternal name that he gave to Moses and to his elect people, the Israelites. This is the name by which God identified himself. I am independent, holy, transcendent, righteous. I am. All of existence, all of reality flows from me. And Jesus claims that title, that name for himself over and over and over again. In John 20, verses 28, as well as other recorded moments of his time with his closest friends, his disciples, there is a moment in which Peter, his best friend, kneels before him and declares that Jesus is my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not correct him, but he accepts this name, this position, this title. Jesus repeatedly, emphatically, unabashedly, unashamedly, specifically, and clearly claimed and said over and over and over again, I am God. Confucius never said that. Buddha never said that. Muhammad, uh, Muhammad never said that. Krishna never said that. Abraham and Moses neither said that. Jesus stands alone among each and every world religion founder, leader, and head by saying, I am God. I am God, said he. Number one, Jesus really did say he was God. Number two, Jesus really was a man. He really was a man. This is not figurative language. This is not metaphorical language. Jesus was truly God incarnate. At, for the sake of and, and risk of engaging a little humor in the middle of my yelling, when you go to the Mexican restaurant and you get chili con carne, you're getting chili with meat, carne, incarnation. This is God with meat right? He's got flesh. He was born of a woman just like every human being ever. His mother, Mary, was a young teenage girl who the Bible testifies was a virgin at conception. She had never lain with a man. His stepdad was a guy named Joe who swung a hammer for a living. And Jesus was raised as the son of a carpenter, learning carpentry, living in a small backwoods town that everybody knew about but very few had ever visited. He grew up as a boy, the Bible tells us, learning and growing in wisdom. Can you imagine that? Creator God, who doesn't speak English as his primary language. He doesn't speak Spanish or German or Chinese or Russian. Whatever language he has is eternal God language. Imagine him, God incarnate, humbling himself and submitting himself, not only to the flesh, but also to have to grow up like you and I did and having to learn to speak the baby talk of humanity. He had a body that got tired, that needed food, that walked and talked. He had ears to hear and eyes to see. He had a body that was touched, that was hugged, that was kissed by both his mother and his adoptive stepdad. And he had a body that could be injured and killed. Indeed, that is exactly what happened to the fleshly, earthly, human body of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus' life on this earth. I, the prophet Isaiah prophesied. He told by the power of God, not with prediction, but with prophecy, the truth about this God-man, Jesus. He grew up before us like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't look like Brad Pitt. He didn't look like Hugh Jackman. He didn't look like Ryan Reynolds. He didn't look like your epitome of handsomeness and masculinity. 
I'm not going to argue that the Bible said that Jesus was ugly. I'm just simply going to say the Bible says clearly that he looked and appeared as an average, ordinary guy. There was nothing extraordinary about him in his charisma and his looks that would get him elected as president of the United States. But though he was a man, he wasn't like any other man in all of human history. This God-man, Jesus, stands alone. Number three, Jesus really was sinless. He was without sin. In 1 John chapter 3, 5, the Bible of Jesus testifies and says to us, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He stands alone. No other human being. I don't care if it's your grandma or Princess Diana or Mother Teresa. I don't care who you pick. There is no human being that has ever lived on the face of this earth who was sinless. The Bible tells us repeatedly over and over again that man is fallen and corrupted in the, in the corruption of sin. All fall short of the glory of God in sin. We are all natural born sinners by our natural birth. We are all tainted and poisoned and corrupted. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner, but not Jesus. Jesus really was sinless. In John chapter 8, 46, Jesus challenges anyone around him to accuse him of sin. Bring me a charge. Who amongst you can say that I'm in sin? He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Uh, if I tell you the truth, then why don't you believe me? No one gets to bring a charge. No one can speak up. And indeed, their mouths, his accusers, his liars, his opponents, and his enemies, their mouths are shut because they have no true legitimate charge of sin against the Son of God. The charges under which Jesus were tried were unjust. And nevertheless, in John chapter 19, even when his pagan opponent, the Roman governor Pilate, interviewed him and brought the charges to Jesus, after his conversation with Jesus, he brings Jesus back out to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Jews, to the Roman government. He brings them to all who are crying for his blood. And he says in John 19, he says, Behold, I am bringing them out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. The government, the government found no guilt in him. The charges under Jesus, which Jesus were tried, were indeed unjust. He was accused of blasphemy, insulting and dishonoring God and leading God's people astray by claiming to be God. And these charges would have rightly condemned any other human being, including me and you. But it wasn't a sin for Jesus to say so because he alone can say that and tell the truth. Jesus is perfect, righteous, and holy. The design that God created and gave to mankind with our first father and our first mother, Adam and Eve, his design for them was to walk in perfect unity and holiness and righteousness as they were designed and they fell into sin. Jesus has come to restore God's perfect design for his image bearers on our behalf. Jesus is without sin for him and therefore for you. Point number four. Jesus really did preach and heal with God's power. Jesus really did preach and he did heal with God's power. 
not simply the power of a charismatic or gifted teacher or communicator. Jesus, with his claims to be God and with his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, my friends, I got to tell you the truth and you need to hear this. Jesus leaves no room for you to try to wiggle into that space that says, ah, oh, Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good teacher, a good example. He leaves no room for that. There is no room for that. Because if Jesus claims to be God and is not, then Jesus Christ is the most damnable human being, the most wicked and detestable liar the world has ever seen. Because he is the one who says, I am God, and you are to lay your life down. Pick up your Roman executionary instrument, your cross. I want you to give your days and your dollars and your devotion to me. And if he is not God, friends, you have to reject him. You have to get rid of him. There is no room for him to be a good man. But if he is God, and he is, then he is the God-man. And he's the only person, the only thing, the only well into which you can and must pour your days, your dollars, your devotion, your very life into to find your life, to find your forgiveness of sin, to find your restoration and reconciliation back to God. Jesus preached and healed with the power of God as God. Jesus didn't come merely with a miracle working and healing ministry. That wasn't his primary deal. That's not what he was after. Though he did preach and heal, Jesus came with what I love, a preaching ministry. Jesus comes with a preaching ministry. His miraculous works of healing and power were there to back up and prove that his words were true. In the book of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2, Jesus is teaching and a, and a, and a paralyzed guy and his buddies, they, they cut a hole in the roof, right? So hopefully someone reported that to the homeowner's insurance. But they cut a hole in the roof and they lowered their paralyzed friend in front of them, believing that Jesus could and would heal him. And then when he tells this paralyzed man, that his sins are forgiven, everyone is amazed. The man is amazed because he was hoping that maybe the wizard had something else in his bag for him, maybe a little healing. But everyone else in the room was amazed. In Mark chapter 2, we are told that everyone in the room was offended because everyone in the room knew that only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. Who do you think you are to say that a man's sins are forgiven? And Jesus, by the Spirit and the power of God, not simply with psychoanalysis, not simply being a good predictor of the human mind and kind of reading the room and knowing. No, he who reads hearts, he who reads souls like an open book, he knew what was the mind of the people in the room. And so he spoke up. Jesus heals the man by his word. You don't think I can forgive sin? If you think that's only for God and not for me, then let me prove to you by healing this man that not only if I have the, the power and the authority to heal a man's body, do I not therefore have the power to heal a man's soul? And so he says to this man, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and take your bed and walk, but so that you may know that I, the Son of Man, has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. If you have a hard time believing my words, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 38, then you need to believe my works because they prove that what I'm saying is true. I'm giving you the Bible addresses, 
so that we don't have our tech team typing too many scriptures on the screen. You write them down, and you go double-check that I'm telling you what the Bible says. Friends, Jesus did what only God the Father can do because the power of God the Father and God the Son was in him, belonged to him, to do the work that God the Father had sent him, the Son, to do. No one else, no one else in all of human history has ever demonstrated the power nor the authority over nature to tell storms to shut up, to walk on water, to curse a tree and have it die right before him, to heal someone's broken body, to cleanse someone from poisonous, filthy disease like leprosy, to have the authority and power over life and death. Nothing even close. Nowhere in the same ballpark. Nowhere in the same universe. Jesus alone possesses and holds the authoritative power of creator God because he is God. Number five, Jesus really did die for sinners. Jesus really did die for sinners. Can I stress that to you? Jesus died for sinners. He says, I do not come for those who are healthy, for those who are good, for those who are religious, for those who are well put together. God helps those who helps themselves is not the gospel. And that is a damnable, condemnable lie. That is the opposite of the gospel. Jesus comes for the wretched, for the starving, for the poor in dollars and for the poor in spirit, for those who are failing and have failed, for those who are covered in their sin and they cannot wash themselves clean. They cannot get back to God. They know they are, they are worthy of rejection. They, are, they know they are worthy of being tossed in the refuse pile. Jesus dies for that person. So my friends, if you are one who has not come running into church today because you are happy and excited, but you have come limping in because of the burden of secret, hidden, unrepentant, cyclical sin, if you are under the burden of others' sin upon you, if you are under the burden of your depression and anxiety, whether that's been laid upon you by this world, your career, your family, or simply yourself, I want to tell you that Jesus died for you, sinner. He has died for you. And for the good people who think that Jesus died for them because they're pretty good and they're on team Jesus, Jesus did not die for you because there's no such thing as a good person. There's one team, Jesus. The other team, hell-bound, unrepentant, reprobate sinners. And some of those are found by him. And some of them, rather than running and worried and scared and hating the condemnation, they see salvation in him, the one who offers to the thirsty, to the one who desires, he says, come and take, I will give to you from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's for sinners. That's for you. It's what he came to do. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me. For this reason, the Father is approving of me. Because I laid down my life that I might take it back up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down, I'll pick it back up. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. He really did die. Do not believe the lie of Islam that says that Jesus simply swooned. He passed out on the cross. He was pulling a David Blaine for us. It was an illusion. It was all sleight of hand. 
Again, a lie that Satan and demons giddily dance and chuckle over behind their hands as you hear it and are tempted to believe it. He really was nailed to a Roman cross by a professional executionary team, trained men with one job who were notoriously proficient at what they do. They made people die in the worst, most humiliating and painful way possible, and he suffered under their death by torture. Spikes were driven through the most sensitive parts of his hands and feet into a wooden beam. His shoulders were dislocated, crushing and squeezing his lungs, and he died a slow, six-hour-long, torturous death by asphyxiation, suffocation. The humiliation of the cross is that once you're up there, you now torture yourself by dragging yourself up and breathing and slumping back down on the weight of your body on the three spikes. He'd been beaten in a way that most men never survived to even see their own cross. And to make certain of his death, a spear was plunged into his side, and it pierced through his ribcage into his heart, and blood and water poured out, verifying that indeed Jesus Christ, the man, was dead. He was wrapped in a hundred pounds of burial linens and placed in a rock-hewn cave tomb for three days in which there would have been freezing de desert temperatures at night. He died, and he died for a purpose. Friends, I tell you that I like Christmas, but I need to tell you this. Christmas is for Easter. Christmas is for Easter. And as happy and as wonderful and as blessed as it is to have the baby Jesus in the manger promised, that's the baby lamb. And now the sacrifice today has been made. And not only that, the sacrifice has been made and redeemed, and he is alive. But he died for this purpose. Romans chapter 14, verse 9, 7 through 9. For none of us now lives to himself. None of us dies for ourselves. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, then we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For th to this end, for to this end, Christ lived and he died and he lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John chapter 10, verse 7 through 11. Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door for all the sheep. All who come before me, they're robbers, they're thieves. But the sheep, my sheep don't listen to them. I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and we will go in and out and find good pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. Friends, Jesus really did die, and he died to save sinners, to make you not merely servants and not merely friends, but to make you his family, to give you his father as your adoptive heavenly father. Jesus really did die, and he died for sinners. Number six, Jesus really did rise for his people. 
He came back to life. He is God. He became a man. He walked in the power of God alone. He lived a life for sinners. He died the death for sinners. And he has risen again to real life for his redeemed people. To real spiritual and physical life. No metaphor, no symbol, literal, real. In each of the four gospels, Jesus demonstrates to his disciples and to others that he was physically alive. In Luke chapter 24, the disciples don't really believe he's alive. So he says, hand me that filet of fish. Can spirits do that? I'm not a ghost. He ate lunch with them multiple times. Over 500 people over the course of 40 days after his Easter resurrection saw him, heard from him, interacted with him. Now, I don't know how many witnesses it takes in our modern-day court of law or court of public opinion to verify something as believably true, but 500 is a lot. And this was no shared delusion, no shared hallucination. That's, if you want to talk science, that's scientifically impossible. Muhammad did not rise from his death. Buddha died and he did not rise again. Neither did any important religious, philosophical, or political leader ever. Not Confucius, not Mao, not Washington, not Lincoln, not Stalin, not Hitler, Constantine, Socrates, Plato, Einstein, Hawking, Dawkins, not Mother Teresa, not a single pope, not a single monk, not a single shaman, not a single priest, not a single one. Jesus stands alone because Jesus alone has died and he's risen again by his own power, by his own will, by his own authority, to his own glory. He has done it. Jesus' resurrection is a real and physical thing. This resurrection body is a major, finalizing, crucial, immovable Jenga piece in the faith of Christians. You lose this, you lose everything. Because Paul, the apostle, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Jesus didn't really rise again, physically, truly, then we Christians are the most pitiable and pathetic people on the planet because our sins might be forgiven, but that does us no good since when we die, we stay dead and have no life. What good is it that your sins are forgiven when you still suffer the penalty of death? which is what sin purchases. The resurrection is a promise and a guarantee. It's a promise and guarantee. Romans chapter 8 tells us that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in you, then the same spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life also to your mortal bodies through that spirit who dwells in you. We are told that we wait as Christians eagerly for our adoption as his sons, which Paul then specifies our adoption as sons is found in the redemption of our mortal bodies. And he says it's in this hope that we are saved. Friends, Jesus is alive. And that means if you are a Christian, if you are his saved, if you are his redeemed, if you are his friend, if you belong to him, then you will live as well. My father, Larry, has been with Jesus for several years, and though he dies, yet he lives. Your friends who have died recently or long ago, if they belong to Jesus, they share in his resurrection, and so do you if you belong to him. 
If he has died for you and risen again for you and his Holy Spirit has come for you and you belong to him, then you are his. I'm sweating and I feel like for no good reason. Where are you at? I don't like to ask for it. What were the miraculous works of Jesus about to prove that his words were true? And what is his most miraculous work all about to prove that his most unbelievable promise really is true? That he died for you, he rose for you. He did it himself because you could not do it. He does it for you. He says, because I live, you will also live. John chapter 14. In John chapter 11, he says to a beloved friend who's mourning the death of her beloved brother, who Jesus was good friends with too. He tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though you die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks her, do you believe this? And he asks you today, through me and his word, do you believe this? Number seven, Jesus really is God, ruling and reigning now over the universe. Ephesians chapter 1, Hebrews 10, Acts chapter 2, and all over the place, even in the Old Testament, he is at the right hand of the Father, ruling from his throne, making his enemies his footstool. His footstool, his enemies. Therefore, if you belong to him, your enemies. The dark and spiritual forces of Satan and demons and all of their effects. His throne in the, is in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says that all the authority of God over heaven and earth are mine. They belong to me. No one can replace him. No one can usurp him. No one can take his seat. No one can overcome him. No one can stand against him. No one can judge him. No one can question him and expect an answer. And no one, no one is sovereign beside him or above him. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is who? Every, no, every knee and every tongue. Whether you belong to him or you have desired to take the bitter cup of God's wrath for your sin and drink it for yourself because you reject the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will claim and confess the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. His throne is above the heavens. His kingdom rules above all. Number eight, Jesus really is coming back. Jesus really is coming back, and he's bringing his kingdom. Jesus promised clearly, plainly, I am coming soon. I will return. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says that he'll be right, he is at the right hand of the Father, and he will return on the clouds of heaven. And we see this proclaimed by Jesus' own angelic messengers in the book of Acts chapter 1. When they tell those who see Jesus ascend physically and spiritually into heaven through the clouds, he says, the way that you see your Lord leaving now into the heavens through the cloud, this is indeed the way he will return. In his own words to his disciple John, as our church has seen and heard as we preach and learn the book of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. He says that to you, his people. He says, behold, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. 
Hang on tight to me. Hold on and stick with me. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And he says in Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon, and I bring my recompense with me to deal with each one according to what he has done. Behold, I am coming soon. So to the one who is thirsty, let him take of the water of life without price. In Revelation chapter 19, we see the promise, and it's put on display for the Apostle John and now to the churches, to you and I. We see put on display and enacted that Jesus is going to return, and no mere marginalized Galilean peasant Jewish baby, he is going to return as conquering, sovereign, victorious king. He's going to be on his white horse of victory. The crown's on his head. His sword is sharp. His robe is white in purity. His enemy is defeated. And his name and title are written on his leg and on his robe. King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, in the garden, upon the fall of mankind, into sin, and all the creation now subjected to the corrupting futility of the curse, God made this promise to our father Adam and our mother Eve, all the way at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, he says that the seed of a woman would arrive and he would crush the head of the serpent, our great enemy, Satan. That the Son of God would one day come and do what the Lord Jesus did do 2,000 years ago. And he accomplished what must be done. And all that is left is for him to return with his secondary promise, his forthcoming greater promise. The book of Isaiah chapter 53 is soaked, it's dripping, it's saturated with the promises of God to his people about Jesus, that this deliverer who would take away the sins of men, redeem them, and make them right with creator God would come, and he has, and when he says he's coming again, you can believe him. Today in your hearing, today in your hearing, the fulfillment of that promise has been preached and not only preached, but shouted. Today in your hearing, the one who is faithful and true has fulfilled his promise and his promises further. I am coming soon. You believe it. I tell you, invest, give, surrender, entrust your days, your dollars, and devotion to this God. There is no other person. There is no other God like Jesus Christ. He stands alone. He is the Son of God. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Creator God. He is the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and was pleased to reconcile all things on heaven and on earth through him, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the firstborn of the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the mighty counselor. He's the Messiah. He's the cornerstone, the founder of our salvation. He is the root of Jesse, the descendant of David. He is the bright morning star. He is the savior Christus Victor, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Friends, today, I want us to shout and to sing what we were only permitted to whisper on Friday, the night of his crucifixion. It is finished. He has done it. Jesus is alive today. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you take heart because he has overcome the world. 
The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. He rules and reigns your God, your Savior, your Lord, your Master, and your King who lived for you, died for you, rose again, and now defeats Satan, demons, sin, and all other effects, including the, the condemnation of your very life. Nothing can separate you from the love of this God in Christ Jesus. And so I tell you, if you are not in Christ if you are not in Christ, if you are watching and listening from somewhere else, if where you are here amongst us today in person, I want to tell you, please take heart. Please take heart. You have now heard of him, and he's calling out to you now. He's calling out to you today. Now. This is the most important day in history, and my prayer would be that someone would find that today is the day of their new birth because Jesus Christ is called and they have come to him. Let the one who desires take freely of the water of life without payment. Let the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness wants to see God and is weak and enfeebled and broken. You can't even lift your arms from your fear, anxiety, defeat, and failure and the sin of others on you. Won't you come? Come to this Lord today. And if that happens to you this morning, then when the church service is done, I present myself at your service, and I'm here for you, and I would love to celebrate with you, and pray with you, and love you, and, and serve you, to talk with you, and help you figure out what you ought to do with this brand new life that you have found in the Lord God. It is the most important day in all of history, and it's all about the most important person in all of human history. The most important thing that was done in all of history by the most important person on this day, and you have the most important question you will ever answer in this life now before you. Who do you say Jesus is? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you have given us your son. We are your enemies. We are your enemies. And the plan of God, the Father, was to send his son, Jesus, to die in your enemy's place. That's us. I ask, Lord, that because you have overcome this world, our enemy and ourselves, I pray that in power, you would place fire in the bellies of your saints and steel in their spines and that you would place new redeeming life-giving life from your Holy Spirit in those who up until now have lived in the domain of darkness but now are transferred into the marvelous kingdom of your glorious light. I pray the preaching of your word in your power would go out and return to us the great fruit and blessing and reward that sons us boasting and bragging in the Lord God, Jesus Christ.